Good morning. Our, <laughs> thanks, Ben. Um, our reading is from Isaiah 52 and 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For what for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the, art of the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears are, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his, and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand out of anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emily. Morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. If you are new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been going through uh, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. And, and we're hitting the, the, big cha- the big chapters now today. This is kind of what we've been working toward the last six weeks. Um, I have one quick other announcement. I want to make sure everybody is aware that we are going to do baptisms on Easter Sunday at any of the services that you would like to be baptized at. If you uh, want to talk about baptism or feel like uh, the Spirit is prompting you to be baptized, whatever, uh, all you need to do is email me and set up a time where we can talk about it. I'd be happy to uh, work through that with you. I've already had a couple of um, meetings about that. We already have some baptisms getting set up, and so I'd love to hear about more new life uh, in our church. So please let me know. Uh, by emailing me. We'll get it set up. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, I, I have to apologize um, right up front. I've had a very busy uh, two weeks, and so 
Honestly, I was not able to prepare a sermon this morning for this morning, um, which has never happened to me before. But, but thankfully, I was able to. This morning, I went on uh, Chat GPT and and um, <laughs> and I put in uh, what would a uh, what would a just past middle age white pastor say about Isaiah 52 and 53? The most amazing sermon came out. I mean, this is just amazing. I can't. I mean, you're, you're going you're gonna to want chat GPT to be a new pastor here. So anyway, so last week, Tyler Thompson took us uh, through chapters 50 and 51 and the first part of 52. It was a, a long bit of scripture, but those, that passage that he took us through is this increasing building to a crescendo, uh, this idea that we're going to look at today, the last half of 52 and all of 53. It's this crescendo of, of God in, in these last several chapters sort of teasing us a little bit, foreshadowing a little bit, and then revealing a little more and a little more, and now he just lays it all out for us. There is a suffering servant who is to come, who is going to be our Savior. And, and all of these things that we see at the end of 52 and through 53, we see every one of those things that Isaiah talks about here uh, fulfilled in the gospel in Jesus Christ. So we know that this is Jesus Christ that Isaiah and God are talking about in these verses. And this crescendo has its completion some six or seven hundred years after this is written when Jesus goes to the cross and utters the three greatest words ever uttered in the history of humanity. And, and those three words are, it is finished. That's right. That's right. Our salvation is done it's not up to us, it's up to Jesus. All we have to do is embrace him. That's, that's the gospel. That is the good news. I would encourage you, please, have your Bibles open. Uh, again, especially in these series where we have lots of scripture to cover, it's important that you have scripture in front of you so you can refer to it as we talk about it. Uh, whether you, need a, a, you have a physical Bible, which is great, and if you need one of those, we have them in the back by the offering boxes. You just grab one of those, it's our gift to you. Um, or if you have a phone, you could probably find Isaiah 52 and 53 somewhere on the internet on your phone. You can pull that up as well. Uh, it's like about to fall. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's going to be such a good son-in-law, I'm telling you. <laughs> yes. So last week, <laughs> we celebrated Tyler James' birthday with the shirts and this week, apparently, they decided to celebrate my birthday, which was actually last week, uh, by wearing all these Blackhawks jerseys. So if you're wondering why there's all this uh, Chicago Blackhawks stuff, which, by the way, the Blackhawks are doing a great job losing as often as possible so that they can get the first, uh, the first draft pick in the draft this year, yes. Yeah, they lost to the Coyotes again last night. You guys went to the game. We were doing a, a wedding, but I digress. Could we get back to Isaiah, please? Thank you. Last week's scriptures also spoke of uh, a reminder, once again, of Israel's uh, disobedience to God and why they're going to be in exile in the first place. Uh, and it's interesting, every single week of this series, we've talked about that. There's this acknowledgement of, of Israel's uh, disobedience to God, 
So the confrontation in their sin, but then always there is this, but I'm going to come for you, I'm going to save you, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to restore you. There's this comfort as well. So again, confrontation and yet comfort because he is a God of covenant. He is a God of his promises, and these are his people. We also, again, heard a little bit more about how the suffering servant is continuing to be described a little bit more in detail. He's the one whose obedience is rooted in his trust for the Lord, his Father. That would be uh, Jesus. And then finally, God again tells the people that he's coming to their rescue. Our, Our big idea for this passage today, it'll be 52 verse 7 through 53 12, two main points. The rescue of Israel from exile in 539, and then the rescue of us when Jesus comes. That's it. Two levels of rescue. That's, what's, that's what uh, God is talking about here. And so 52.12 through 53.13 describes the suffering servant as a life of vicarious suffering, meaning that Jesus suffered for us on our behalf, in our place, which then provides atonement for our sins and the sins of others through his defining, divinely appointed exaltation, which is on the cross. So this is all pointing to the cross. We know that Jesus is raised. We know that. We know that Easter is coming. But today really focuses on the, the atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And, and there is, of course, astonishment about all of this. God talks about it. Isaiah talks about it throughout this passage, that people are going to be astonished that this is happening. But we need to remember that that astonishment does not necessarily um, uh, result in faith for people. People can be astonished and still not have faith. We know that in John chapter 11, the Gospel of John, Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. And there were many people who believed after they saw that, and they said, okay, Jesus is the real deal. But there were also many others who did not believe. In fact, there were many who just wanted to kill Jesus because he was kind of an inconvenience to them. And so just because somebody is astonished does not necessarily mean they're going to have the faith to go along with that astonishment. So again, we're going to start with the transition from last week's message that Tyler preached into this week's verses, which means we're going to look at verses 7 through 12 in chapter 52. Let me read those for us. Again, have your Bibles in front of you. It'll be helpful. Isaiah writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see and return the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see that the salvation is of our God. Depart, depart, go out from here, from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. There's no reason for you to hurry from your exile. And you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So those first four verses, 7 through 10, describes the long sought after, 70 years, victory of Jerusalem. So these first four verses 
God has actually turned his attention from speaking about the exiles in Babylon, 700 miles to the east of Jerusalem, to now speaking to the wasteland of Jerusalem and the people who were left behind there when the exile happened. He's telling the people in Jerusalem that there's a victory coming, that there is good news coming. He's saying this, the, the exile is ending and you're going to be restored as well. The exiles are going to come back. This is the precursor to the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And it's, a, it's wonderful news for those who are in Jerusalem. Because believe it or not, it was worse to be left behind in Jerusalem during the exile than to go into the exile. It was much worse in Jerusalem. And so God uh, begins by describing you know, how beautiful are the feet that bring this good news. So there's a reference of that in the New Testament as well. I want to explain a little bit about it. Many of you know this, uh, but for those who don't, it's interesting history. In ancient times, when there would be a war or a battle in some town or city that was away from like the headquarters city or the capital city or whatever, maybe 15 or 20 or 25 miles away, there would be a battle or a war there. And once it was pretty clear who was going to win the war or win the battle, um, the home team, the team with the city that's close, uh, that's the headquarters, they would send a messenger to run back to the main city with news of how the war went. And so that messenger would either bring good news or bad news. And of course, the, the, the messenger's feet running were beautiful when he brought good news, but they were kind of ugly when he brought bad news. But there were watchmen on the, on the walls of the city, too, who could see the, the person bringing the news from the battlefront from a, a long distance off, maybe a mile off, and they could tell by the countenance of the person bringing the news whether it was going to be good news or bad news. They knew before the person got there to proclaim the good news or the bad news what the news was going to be. If the guy was running with lots of energy and with a little jump to his step and, and maybe he was shaking his fist in the air and all that, they knew, we won, we won. And they could already start to tell everybody that they had won, the good news that they had won. But if he's kind of running slumped over, slow, tripping a little bit, maybe he's got ash or dust on his forehead, as a matter of fact, a sign of mourning, then they would know before he even got there that this was bad news. He didn't win. And so what God is saying here is that when the exile ends in Babylon, there are going to be messengers who come to Jerusalem to tell those who are still in Jerusalem, good news. The exile is over. God has redeemed us. There is restoration coming. This is, this is exciting. All we got to do is now is prepare for the fact that God is going to restore us. This is beautiful. And there will be messengers running around the regions of this ancient, devastated Jerusalem city proclaiming the end of the exile and the, and the return of the Jews to the promised land. As I said, Paul speaks about this in the book of Romans. He describes, uh, the, he, he says this about the gospel, those who tell people about Jesus, how beautiful are the feet who bring the good news of Jesus. So as you go out into the marketplace and you have conversations with people about Jesus, Paul is saying your feet are beautiful. You're like a messenger delivering good news of victory in Jesus Christ. It's a metaphor and it's a beautiful metaphor. By the way, some of you also know this, but I'll tell the rest of you that don't know this. This is how the race, the marathon, got started. Okay? You all know what a marathon is? Okay? How long is a marathon? How far is a marathon? 26.2 miles or 26 miles, 285 yards. Okay? So in 490 BC, so this is 2,600 years ago, um, 
In Marathon, Greece, there was a battle against the Persians, and the Persians were favored to win. They were like a number one seed, and, and Greece was like a number 16 seed in March Madness, okay? So Persians are favored to win. Big battle of Marathon, all right? Well, the Greeks won this battle against the Persians. So a guy named Pheidippides um, was sent to run back to Athens to tell them of the good news. Guess how far it was from Marathon to Athens? It's 26.2 miles. So Pheidippides runs all the way back, and he proclaims to Athens the good news that they have won the battle of Marathon, and then what happened to him? He dropped dead. So those of you who don't want to run a marathon, there's your excuse. The first person to ever do it, drop dead. You don't want to be like Pheidippides, okay? Anyway, this is an important thing to understand because God uses this trope throughout the Bible to explain that he is good news. His salvation is good news. His restoration is good news. His redemption is good news. And you see in verse 8, the response of those on the wall. They see the messenger's countenance. Those in, Israel, in Jerusalem see the messenger coming in like this, going, oh, the exile is over. They already know, and they begin to celebrate. They begin to break forth into singing. They're, 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 they, just, they just can't contain their, their joy. And, they, and, and God says, break forth into this singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. See, here's the problem. God is not only telling the exile captives the good news of redemption and restoration, but he's also telling all those who were stuck in Jerusalem and didn't get to go in the exile after the final devastation in 586 B.C. There were people who had to stay in Jerusalem, which turned out to be a waste place for decades. It was horrible. The conditions were absolutely inhumane there. If you want to know more about it, there's a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations, where the prophet Jeremiah describes what it's like in Jerusalem. And yet, even in Jeremiah, even in Jeremiah, well, in Jeremiah 24 and in Lamentations, right in the middle of Lamentations in chapter 3, Jeremiah says, but don't worry, because God is going to save you. He's a God of covenant. He is going to fulfill his promises. But you can read all about it there. And then I love verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nation. So Tyler Thompson talked last week because this idea of God's arms are throughout these chapters as well. Uh, Tyler talked last week about how God said to the captives, he says, are my arms too short to be able to save you? And the answer, of course, is no, his arms are plenty big to be able to save. And then later on, he says, I will save you by my arms. And then here he says, he's going to bear his holy arm before the eyes of the nations. Imagine if you're at Lifetime Fitness and the Lord walks in and he shows off his guns. How about that? God is doing his reps, and so he's got some seps, my brothers and sisters. It's pretty corny, I know. The point is, God is going to use the end of the exile as a testimony to all the nations of his infinite love and power. And then verses 11 and 12 switches back to the exiles in Babylon. He says, you're going to leave Babylon, and you're going to leave Babylon with your head held high. You are not a defeated people. You are a victorious people. And this is also a picture of who we are in Christ. We should be bold, but not arrogant about our faith. We are told in Hebrews that we are to be confident, but not sassy. Even when we are mocked and derided for believing the words of this ancient and archaic book, and for believing that Jesus rose from the dead, we can hold our heads high and take the world's best shot. And then again, look at verse 12. God says, you need to slow walk this. You don't need to run like your hair is on fire, screaming in fear. You need to slow walk this. Walk in dignity. 
They don't have to run as cowards. They can, they can walk in honor as they walk out of their exile. So these first few verses, 7 through 12, is the rescue of Israel from the exile by God. And now we look at 52.13 through 53.12, which points to our rescue today by Jesus from our exile, that sin that separates us from God. So let's start with those first few verses, 13 through 15 of chapter 52. Behold, my servants shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So the suffering servant appears. The Messiah finally takes the stage, center stage. This is all about the coming servant, Jesus. But he comes in a way that surprises and startles everybody. He's going to be ugly, and marred, and seemingly weak. Now, I understand why we do this, but you need to know that when you see those beautiful portraits of of Jesus with the the perfect skin on his face, just beautiful skin that we all wish that we had in his flowing hair, that's really not what he looked like. He he was not somebody that you would look look at necessarily and go, okay, that's the one who's going to save us. In fact, you'd look at him and say, that's certainly not the one who is going to save us. And the reason is because that's like a precursor for everything that Jesus does, which is that power is going to be done in a way that the world's not used to. Through through Jesus, the world is going to see power done in a way that they've never seen done before or since. The strong arm of the Lord will be one who submits to the cross. Power by submission to the cross. He's going to be high and lifted up on a cross. And as a result, kings will be silenced. They're going to be stunned. And please notice how this starts in verse 15. Uh, 13, my servant, the Messiah, shall act wisely. And then he describes how that wisdom is manifest. It's manifest in the unjust beating and crucifixion of God's Son, the Savior. Wisdom is manifest in this horrible Difficult submission to the cross. This is amazing. The wisdom is in submitting to the Father's plan for the redemption of anyone who would come to Jesus in repentance of their sin and, and, and give, them, give him their faith. It, their faith in him as Lord. And his appearance was marred. And his form, his body, was destroyed. Verse 14, even before Jesus was crucified, he was so devastatingly tortured that nobody could recognize who he was. And as a result, in verse 15, the Savior, Jesus, would sprinkle many nations. Now that word sprinkle has got so much meaning embedded in it. It's not even a double entendre. It's like a triple entendre. It it could be a reference to baptism, of course, which we're going to do on Easter, but it's also a reference to the idea that the the um, priests, the Jewish priests, would take blood, the blood of the sacrifice and they would sprinkle it as an atonement for sin. So it's a reference to that as well. But also that ancient Hebrew word that's translated as sprinkle also means to startle or to surprise. So in some contexts, it means that, that, that you're going to be surprised or, or, or astonished by something. And Jesus does all of that. We are baptized into him. 
He sprinkles us with His blood for atonement of our sin. And we are astonished by the fact that this is how we get our salvation. And, 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 then, and then the problem, of course, is that not everyone is going to believe in a way that has saving faith. Even as Jesus performs the miracles and teaches in this accessible and, and yet irrefutable way, most people are going to look at him and go, really, this guy? Really? Not everyone is going to believe. They may understand. It says that in the end of verse 15, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have faith. James chapter 2 says it this way, you believe God is one? Well, good for you. <laughs> That's sarcasm, by the way, because he says then even the demons believe and they shudder. You can believe in who Jesus is, but not believe in Jesus. And that's what he's saying, and that's a challenge, and that's a problem. And even though God and the prophets had, have declared the Messiah was to come, the Messiah still arrived unexpectedly. And, and when it was revealed, it seemed like nonsense because he was so unimpressive. And he was also from the wrong side of the tracks, to use more modern vernacular. He was from the wrong side of the track, so to speak. Jesus was the illegitimate, illegitimate son of Mary, whose husband, Joseph, was just a plain old carpenter. He flunked out of religious school. And Jesus, later, when he began his ministry at 30 years old, he began it without any of the approved formal training that was expected in that day for a professional religious person. And so he was mocked, and he was insulted, and he was threatened when he would teach and preach. See, the Messiah did not come from the right family. He did not have the approved vocation or education. And he did not pay his dues the way you were supposed to in that ancient religious system. Furthermore, he was unattractive, both in form and in status. And so he was despised and rejected by most people. But then you get to these next three uh, verses, this next paragraph. And this is the centerpiece. This is the core of the gospel right here, 4 through 6. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's what God is saying. He's saying, you and I are in our own exiles as well, apart from God. We're separated from God. And the only way that we can be reconciled to God, the only way we can be restored and redeemed to God, is by giving our lives to Jesus because he's the only one that pays the correct uh, payment, the, the correct he's the one that has the recompense for our sin. And so we give our lives to him and God looks at Jesus and that sacrifice that satisfies him eternally so that we might have eternal life. And, and you look, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. He, he's done this for us, and yet we still, we still struggle with it. We still look at him and say, Really, that? That? It's confounding. It sounds so easy. Now, living the life isn't that easy, but it is actually that easy. Jesus did it. We get the benefit of it. That's the gospel. Come to him. And then see what Jesus has for you after you come to him. And see how he changes the trajectory of your life and reprioritizes your life and gives you insight into things that you've never had insight before. 
Stop rejecting him. Stop, stop thinking that he's not really who he says he is. Or, or stop trying to, trying to say, yeah, he's my savior, but I'm going to manipulate him so he looks a little bit more like me. No, he needs to transform us so that we're looking more and more like him. And then that, that last verse there. Um, every one of us has turned away to our own way. This, I, I read that again, and I, it was, I was reminded last week, Caitlin Durkin was up here, and she prayed a prayer. By the way, ChatGPT has no idea that Caitlin prayed, so you know now that this is not a ChatGPT sermon. Okay. Anyway, Caitlin got up here and prayed, and, and her prayer was so powerful for me because she said, all of us have tried other foundations. All of us have tried these foundations of sand. And, and every time that, that, that sand slips away, we just go and look for another foundation of sand. And I'm like, how does she know my heart? How does she know what my life has been like? It's true. Jesus is the solid rock. And that's what God is saying here. This is the one and only way. I know that sounds narrow and exclusive. But it's the way. And it's a way of love. It's a way of mercy. It's a way of grace. And it's a way of forgiveness. It is also a way of justice and a way of reconciliation. And then verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, as we read the New Testament gospel accounts of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, it just seems obvious to me that all of these things came true. How do you plan for that? How, how, How does Jesus arrange, unless he's God, to be born in exactly the right place to fulfill Scripture, to live a life perfectly to fulfill Scripture of the Messiah, and then to be executed and tried in this unjust trial exactly the way it was described in the Old How does he arrange for all of that to happen perfectly unless he's God? There's only one answer. He's God. He is God. He is the perfect sacrifice. And that's a very helpful thing for us. In verse 7, the fact that Jesus never worked to defend himself, never spoke in his own defense. By the way, that's also mentioned in Isaiah 42. So even earlier in this series, we began to get these little hints that eventually we were going to get to this suffering servant, the Messiah, and that his trial was a mockery of truth and justice, which resulted, verse 8, in people thinking that he had no connection whatsoever to God. People, would, people still ask today, why would God do this if this was his son? Why would God do that to his son? How could he possibly be connected to God if this happened to him, this crucifixion? And that Jesus was both sent to the grave with the wicked men, so he was crucified between two two criminals, but he was also buried in a rich man's tomb. That's Joseph of Arimathea. How did Jesus arrange that after he was dead? How did he know who he was going to be crucified with? How does any of this happen if he's not God? And let me answer that question I asked just a minute ago. Why would God allow this if Jesus is his son? If Jesus is divinely connected to God, if Jesus is really sent by God, why would God allow this? 
Here's why. Because the cross is not the end of the story. Sunday is coming. Easter is coming. Jesus is alive. That's why. The cross is not the end of the story. Everybody there thought it was the end of the story. Jesus is up there going, man, I got a surprise for you. I am playing an eternal game. You're playing a finite game. That is beautiful. And then here's these last three verses. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. He shall bear their iniquities, and he bore the sin of many. How many times in this passage do we hear that? He took our sin. We don't have it anymore. We give it to him. And God looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ, our advocate, our defense attorney. And God says, you are innocent, you are righteous, you are holy. That's a beautiful thing. Again, beginning of verse 10, why was it the will of the Lord for Jesus to suffer? There's only one answer. It's because of his love for us. You heard Anne say it. This is the greatest love story ever. For some of you, you still think it was that 1969 story, love story with uh, Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. No, no. That doesn't compare to what Jesus did on the cross. Trust me. And verse 11, by the way, I know some of you are like, was there a movie in 1969? Did they have movies in 1969? And then verse 11 is really important to understand two things. One, even though there is anguish regarding the cross and the suffering, both the Father and the Son are satisfied. Literally, they are filled with everything that is needed to eternally render our account paid in full. How would you like your mortgage right now to be rendered paid in full? I would love that. (laughs) I would love... That's what he's done with my sin. That's what he's done with your sin. It's a beautiful thing. The Lord has all the recompense he needs for you and I to be redeemed. But, number two, not everyone shares in this redemption. God says that as a result of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, many will be counted as righteous, many will have their iniquities paid for, but not all. There must be repentance and confession. For me, it was confession that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God by my sin. And I'm in need of redemption and salvation. That everything I've been doing and everything that I've been thinking is wrong. I need to go to Jesus. And then repentance is a turning away from my life without God and accepting and embracing Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Those are the many, but not everyone will come. And and by the way, let me just take a minute to talk about the difference between the words Lord and Savior. This is important. A lot of people think the words Lord and Savior are synonyms, but they aren't. And those who do know that there's a difference, many of them would like there to be a difference, and they want one and not the other. They think it's like a buffet. I I really just want the Savior part, but not the Lord part. But they don't understand that it's all-inclusive. You have to take it all or nothing. He's either your Savior and your Lord, or he's neither. Okay? And here's why this is an issue. A lot of people want the salvation without the lordship. A lot of people want Jesus to do their bidding but refuse to follow him. 
You know, take care of my sin, Jesus. Thank you, but I'll see you later. I'm glad I'm saved, but I sure don't, I sure don't want a, a walk of redemption if that means you get to have a say about my life. And I think that's a struggle many of us go through, even as we are saved. I think many of us go through that struggle until eventually God works his sanctifying process on us and we begin to realize we've got to follow. We've got to follow. This is one of the reasons why, and my, myself included, uh, people often use the word Christ follower rather than Christian. And there is a difference, I think. It's not that a Christian is not necessarily a Christian. But the term Christ follower points out the reality that if Jesus is raised from the dead, if the resurrection is real, and it is, then for salvation to be real, we also have to submit ourselves to him as Lord and allow him to lead, guide, and direct our lives. We're not going to do it perfectly. We know that. But the Holy Spirit is here dwelling in us. We have God's word. We have faith communities. And so we have the tools to be able to do this. So, Israel will be rescued and redeemed from the exile. And you and I, if we are in Christ, Paul uses the the little phrase, in Christ, 152 times in his letters in the New Testament. That's pretty important to Paul. We need to be in Christ. If we're in Christ, we will enjoy redemption, rescue, and salvation from our own exiles from God. That's all good news. And there's been a lot of good news in this series. Every week, we're, it's, so, it's so fun to preach from Isaiah because every week we get, get to get up and say, yeah, we're confronted in our sin, but guess what? We are comforted in the hope of God because he's a God of covenant and he keeps his promises. He is our salvation. We pretty much pound away on this every week, no matter what the series is. By the way, after Easter, we're going to be doing seven weeks on Romans chapter 8. You don't think we're going to talk about how, how saved we are in Romans chapter 8? That's what we're going to talk about. For seven weeks, it's going to be beautiful, okay? But that's what, that's what every, every Sunday we do that. We proclaim the gospel. We're sinners separated from God by that sin. But the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is that by his crucifixion and resurrection, we are saved if we come to him. Now that's existentially, eternally, ethereal, otherworldly. Some of you might be saying, all right, great. What does that mean for me right now? Practically, Well, there are many ways that we could go. Many directions we could talk about that. But there's one in particular I want to close with today, and it's forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard. Can I get an amen? Yeah, very enthusiastic. Very, very. Yeah. Forgiveness is hard, but it's absolutely necessary if we follow Jesus. You know, forgiveness often doesn't make sense. Why? Well, the other person doesn't deserve it. Or if I forgive, it feels like it takes justice off the table, and I don't want to take justice off the table. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. You know, somebody sins against me. Somebody offends me. Okay, boom. I just took it on the chin once, and then I release them from that by forgiving them. It's like taking it on the chin twice. That hardly seems fair, right? It's costly, but it's one of the best things we can do for ourselves. Mental health experts who have no interest whatsoever in Jesus or the Bible will tell you, if you're not a person who forgives, you will struggle with mental health. Forgiveness is an integral part of that. God knows that. Jesus knows that. Paul knows that. John knows that. 
It's good. Some of you have heard this before, and, and I think it's true. If you're going to be one of those persons who seeks revenge, they say you should dig two graves, one for the person you're going after and one for yourself, because that'll kill you as well. Having a heart that doesn't let go, that doesn't forgive. And you see that last part of verse 12. Jesus bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus not only pays for our sins and forgives us by his payment, but he also advocates for us and prays for us. He goes to God all the time with our prayers and says, hey, can you help a guy out? Can you help a gal out? Okay? And so he actually tells us in the New Testament that this is the least that we can do for others as well. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. Be careful of not forgiving others lest you not be forgiven by God. Forgive one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. That's all from the New Testament. That's all from the Bible. I didn't make any of that up. Here's what uh, theologian Miroslav Wolf says about forgiveness. I, I quoted him a few weeks ago. I'm going to quote him again. And by the way, I think this quote, well, it jarred my preserves, so it might jar your preserves as well, if you have any preserves to be jarred. Here's what he says. One reason forgiveness flounders is because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. I'm glad that's applied to other people and not me. I've always struggled with forgiveness. The reason I struggle with forgiveness is because I say I have a keen sense of justice. See, I'm a justice guy, so I struggle with forgiveness. It's funny, as I've been teaching at GCU in the College of Theology there, this conversation comes up there as well. And I hear students say the same thing. I know we're supposed to forgive, but I struggle with forgiveness. And I always ask them, why? I want to know why. Invariably, it's the same answer, because I have a keen sense of justice. Do justice and forgiveness, can they coexist? Or are they mutually exclusive? I don't think the two fit together, forgiveness and justice. Well, let me say two things about that. Number one, maybe they don't fit together. But as I read the Bible, I realize that's really not supposed to be my concern in the first place. Because it's God who avenges. Not me. God is the one who brings justice. Not me. That's really hard. But man, it sure releases me from a lot of trouble. It's really good. God is the one who takes care of justice. And so he tells me my job is to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. If God executed his justice on me instead of giving me Christ, that would be really ugly for me. Here's the second thing. The most influential man ever in my life was Tom Schrader, our founding pastor. He died way too soon, a little, little more than four years ago. He was 69 years old, just turned 69 when he died. Tom will be the first to tell you that he had a lot of faults. He, he had great self-awareness. He had a lot of faults. I remember when Tom would teach about being slow to speak or how we're not supposed to let harsh or corrupting words come out of our mouths, but only that, what, that which builds up and encourages others. He would say, in all honesty, I'm not the person who should be teaching this because this is not my wheelhouse. He was snarky. He had a sharp wit. Those of you knew him, right? Sharp wit. Okay, emphasis on 
sharp, <laughs> but a great wit too. Okay? But when it came to forgiving, that was Tom's wheelhouse. Tom was a world-class forgiver. And believe me, a guy with a platform like his, the way people would come after him, he did a lot of forgiving. But you know why he was a world-class forgiver? Because Tom knew that he was a world-class sinner and he had been forgiven in a world-class way by Jesus. It's that simple. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for these words. Everything's been building to this, I feel like, and, and uh, uh, what a great day to be able to talk about your son, Jesus. God, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. And we thank you for what you're doing for us now. And we just pray that you would give us the courage to live by these convictions that you have given us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're going to sing a couple more songs have our time of response and reflection. Um, we're also going to take communion if our communion servers would come forward. And as Ann mentioned, we'll have uh, pastors, staff, deacons, elders standing in the wings if you have questions or you want to talk to somebody, you need prayer. Um, uh, Andrea is also back at the Connect desk if you need something from her. We're going to do communion, though. I, w- I want to talk just a minute about communion. Uh, did another wedding last night. And um, the couple wanted to take their first communion as a married couple together during the ceremony after their vows and exchange of rings, which is, I just, I've always enjoyed that. I thought that's a really beautiful thing. Uh, when, when I turn off the microphones and there's just music playing and it's a private serving of communion just to the couple, I do the words of institution and then I back away and they serve each other and it's really beautiful. But as I was doing the words of institution for Jacob and McKenna yesterday, as I was saying them to them, I I thought, my goodness, these words never get old to me. It's it's never routine to think about this. And I hope they never get old to you. I hope it's never routine to you either. This is a sacrament that we come to the Lord's table. That on the night that he was betrayed, he's with his friends and he picks up the bread and he, and, he, and he thanks God. He thanks his father and then he breaks it and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. This is the plan. I'm going to go to the cross. My body's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he picks up the cup of wine and after giving thanks again, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Paul tells us, he says, every time we, we take these elements, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I often say, come out into the aisle and come forward for communion, for the Lord's Supper, with, with a sense of confession and celebration. But after the passage we went through today, let's rejoice. Let's just celebrate. I know we're sinners. I know we need confession But Jesus died for us so that we might have life. Let's celebrate that today. And let's sing as we come.
Amen. Thank you for being together this morning to worship and to hear from the word. Hear this benediction from Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. It says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.